New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I'm here with Leanne Whitney, and together we're going to introduce Leanne's interview recorded in 2005 with Russell Targ on the topic of Beyond the Five Senses. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Jeff. Lovely to be back with you again. It's exciting to me that you done this interview so many years ago with Russell. He's been one of my closest friends, actually, for the last 30 years because of the common interests we share in parapsychology. So, it was wonderful for me to listen to this video. I learned things about Russell I didn't know. Oh, wonderful. That's so heartwarming to hear. I had a, it's a long time ago, but I loved being able to visit Russell in his home and learn from him and learn about him. Uh, it, was, it was a wonderful interview. And incidentally, I might just mention parenthetically, since it's 18 years later, Russell in a few months is going to be celebrating his 90th birthday. Amazing. Incredible. Incredible. Incredible life. Incredible yeah. body of work. He's an enormous pioneer. And when you interviewed him in 2005, I, I would say he had basically just retired from an amazing career. He was at the peak of his intellectual powers. So it's a, a great interview that you did. I'm so happy to be able to share it with our viewers. Oh, I love that. It's so heartwarming to hear because him being your closest friend and you having interviewed him several times. So for you to say that, it means a lot. We are working on a special book right now. It'll be released next year, and it's going to include all of our interviews with Russell Targ. This one will unfortunately be excluded because it, it, we've already mapped out, but we have uh, somewhere in the area of 16 interviews. Wow. From the first series of Thinking Aloud into New Thinking Aloud or all... Only in the New Thinking Aloud. Three from the first series and another 13 or so from uh, the current YouTube channel. Wonderful. Well, lots of knowledge and wisdom to be garnered from Russell, for sure. Uh, he's clearly one of the most uh, brilliant people I've ever known. Yes, brilliant. And um, the William James quote about the, the white crow, right? If, if you want to disprove the hypothesis that all crows are black, you just need one white crow. And of course, William James was referring to, at the time, the, the uh, spiritualist medium he was working with, Leonora Piper. He said she was his white crow. And for Russell Targ, you could say it's the uh, discovery uh, that he delved into so deeply of remote viewing. Remote viewing was Russell's white crow. And as a result of his work, now thousands and thousands of people today are practicing remote viewing. 
That's right. And hopefully more and more people will continue to be exposed to his work. Uh, the idea that consciousness is, you know, beyond the confines of time and space is a teaching from the wisdom traditions, Patanjali, who you know that I love, uh, you know, the Upanishads. And um, again, I think Russell's body of work speaks to that beautifully. He does a brilliant job of integrating modern science with the ancient spiritual mystical teachings. Yes, he does. And he's a longtime meditator himself, right? And in, in, yeah. in has also studied those those teachings extensively and um did we mention it in the peter russell uh video when we did that introduction the idea of embodying that wisdom and i think uh russell targ is absolutely exemplary at that he keeps referring to the term spaciousness referring to really who we are inside we are much larger than we have any appreciation of isn't that true? Isn't that true? And if anybody viewing this who hasn't um, delved into either intuition or remote viewing or psychic abilities uh, can just have one takeaway, that spaciousness, quieting the mind and going beyond the noise so one can be in the spaciousness and hear the signals. I think that, uh, again, is sort of a beautiful um, thread to, to all of Russell's work. Now, you were in Russell's home. I know he has several homes. Uh, so I presume you were in his house in Palo Alto. Yes, I was in Palo Alto. That's right. We'll now allow our viewers to join you there in Palo Alto, California. All right. So let's talk a little bit about... Um SRI, the Stanford Research Institute. Tell me how you got involved with that and a little bit about the evolution of that project. Well, in the beginning, I was a graduate student at Columbia University, and I was supplementing my income by doing stage magic in New York. So in, I was a sort of child magician doing shows, and what I discovered is that from time to time, standing on the stage pretending to read somebody's mind in the audience, I would actually get a flash of information pertaining to what they were actually thinking or what their house looked like. So I could supplement my magic trick with this information that came psychically. And through that, I got in touch with J.B. Ryan at Duke University. And as a young scientist, I began to think that it was more interesting to try and understand how psychic ability works rather than doing stage magic. But I had another career in which I, sort of my day job, I was doing laser research for many years. But then in 1972, I had enough experience with ESP research avocationally that together with my colleague Hal Putoff, another physicist, we started a program at Stanford Research Institute. So we were able to convince SRI that we could do research scientifically and investigate people's psychic abilities without embarrassing the Institute. And not only that, we thought we could attract money from various government agencies to support our work. Because Hal and I were very experienced doing laser research and getting government support, so we were well known in places like NASA and Defense Intelligence Agency and CIA. 
So we thought not only could we do research and achieve some kind of understanding with how ESP worked, but we could also attract enough money so that SRI would allow us to follow our favorite thing. Okay. And now your degree was in physics, is that right? Okay. Um, I worked in laser physics for 15 years before I got involved in ESP research. So okay. I, I was known as a laser. I was, in, I was a pioneer, actually. I was working on lasers before there were any lasers. Uh, Gordon Gould is now credited with inventing the laser, the first pioneer. And I worked with Gould for a number of years and then set up a laser laboratory at Sylvania in Mountain View, California. And then 15 years later, Hal Putoff and I started the program at Stanford Research Institute. Okay. And again, because you had familiarity with getting government funding and money, you decided we're going to go to the government and see if they'll support us in this psychic research, really. That's right. This all started for me in early 1972. I was invited by NASA to give a talk on speculative technology at a conference they were having on St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia. So at this meeting, I had an opportunity to brief Werner von Braun and Jim Fletcher, who was the administrator of NASA, and Arthur Clark, and a number of others, and tell them that I was interested in starting a program to investigate psychic abilities, and that I brought with me a little ESP teaching machine where they could see that they can use this to get in touch with a part of themselves that's psychic. And Von Braun tried this, and Fletcher tried the machine and did pretty well. And Von Braun said, oh, yes, my grandmother was very psychic. She always knew what was going to happen, who was going to die. Give these guys some money. So it was basically Von Braun's psychic grandmother that launched this program at SRI. And we then went off in a two-part program. One is to see how we could enhance psychic abilities and help people develop them and also we were looking for brainwave correlates does a person's EEG response change at the time that they're correctly experiencing something psychic and both of those programs were successful. What we were able to investigate under the rubric of remote viewing is the fact people have the ability to describe and experience what's happening in a distant location that's blocked from their ordinary perception. Right. So let's let's just step back, and I'm going to ask you some definitions here. Like, can you define psychic abilities first of all? Like, what what does it mean to be psychic? Psychic abilities are a group of abilities we have to experience what's hidden from ordinary view. We did experiments uh, at SRI, our beginning experiment, the bread and butter experiments that worked most reliably that people replicated throughout the world is a kind of psychic hide-and-go-seek, where I would sit in the laboratory with whoever was psychic for the day. It could be a government scientist, an SRI researcher, or an experienced psychic practitioner. But I would sit in the laboratory with that person and we would try and describe what it looks like at some distant place where my colleague and a contract monitor or a government visitor was hiding. 
So we had to describe what it looked like, what was going on at some distant place. And I wouldn't know, of course, where they were hiding or even where they might be hiding. So, for example, we had 60 different cards indicating possible locations, and I wasn't involved in the preparation of these cards. So in a random way, one of those cards, so traveling orders, would be given to the government official or help put off or whoever went off driving. And then 20 minutes later, I would have to work with you, for example. You As would the come psychic. To, you, would, right, you would come <laughs> to the lab and say, show me something psychic. And I would say, what we'll show you is how to do it. That way, when you go back to Washington, you'll have your experience about psychic functioning rather than my story or some demonstration. Okay, so so basically what I hear you saying is psychic abilities are an abilities to see outside the confines of the rational, so outside the five senses, beyond what you can see with these eyes or smell with this nose or taste with this mouth, that kind of thing. That's right, and there are okay. three kinds of psychic abilities that actually go on during our remote viewing. One of them is a mind-to-mind connection. Somebody is hiding at the boat dock in Redwood City, 20 miles from here, for example. And the psychic will say, uh, he's looking at some pillars. Now he's going out and he's looking at some masts of boats. Uh, Now he sees something that looks like a little pagoda. So it's a mind-to-mind connection between the viewer in the laboratory and the actual experience of the person at the distant site. That would be a telepathic connection. There's also a clairvoyant connection where the person in the laboratory are just viewing the distant target as a um, location. The person there is a beacon, but the psychic in the laboratory has mobility at that target. The psychic in the laboratory is able to wander around and see things that the person in the laboratory didn't notice. That often makes it hard for us where somebody will come back and say, I see that you were at the restaurant in the foothills and there's a plaque behind it saying that this is a national monument. And the person who went to the restaurant said, I didn't see any plaque. He's and. The psychic will say, well, let's go back and I'll show you where it was. So that'll be a clairvoyant connection where the psychic has direct connection with the location beyond what the person was seeing. So we know that that's not mental telepathy because nobody at the site had any idea that there was a brass plaque hidden in the ground. Okay. The third channel or the third uh, opportunity for psychic connection is precognition. Sometimes I'll be sitting with a person in the laboratory, and this happened with a famous physicist who came to visit us. He said, I close my eyes, and I don't see anything. When I close my eyes, it's dark. What do you expect? And I'll say, well, I I can understand that. We're going to visit this place in a little while. About half an hour, I will take you to wherever they are. Can you move yourself forward in time and just imagine what you're going to see a half an hour from now? You're going to have this experience. So just describe now what you're going to be experiencing. What do you see in your mind's eye? 
pertaining to where we will be a half hour from now. And so I can do that. I see <clears throat> this duck walking across the road. All I see is this stupid duck. It reminds me of my grandmother's farm. And they came back and said, okay, where, where were you? And they said, oh, we went to the duck pond. So that was a case where the person couldn't make contact, as far as he was concerned, could not make contact with where the people were hiding, but he was able to look into his own future and describe what he would be experiencing at a later time. Okay, so we have mind-to-mind, -mind, we have clairvoyance, and we have precognition. And I guess my question is, how, like, what are those capabilities? You know, here we are in this third dimension of, you know, space and time and north, south, east, and west, or whatever, you know, makes the dimensions. How, how do people, how are they able to go outside of that and actually see mind-to-mind -mind or clairvoyantly or with precognition? How does that work? Well, this is a case where modern physics comes to rescue. Modern physics says that we live in a non-local universe. It's a universe in which things that appear separated are connected to one another. Now, this is a very old idea. In the Buddhist literature, every page of the Prajnaparamita, which is the Buddhist writing, says that separation is an illusion. And this would be 2,400 years ago. And even before that, there's the Vedic teaching, which is probably the most profound teaching in all of metaphysics, is that Atman equal Brahman, which is to say Atman, which is yourself, your own soul or awareness, is one with the whole spatial and physical and non-physical universe. This Brahman is the physical and non-physical universe, and the teaching is that your awareness is one with the whole physical and non-physical universe. In the 8th century, a Buddhist writer Padmasambhava, who's the one who actually brought Buddhism to Tibet, told us that you achieve self-realization when you can view the world with naked awareness. He wrote a book with that title. It says, when you give up your conditioning from all your early childhood traumas and betrayals and can experience things as they are, then you experience a spaciousness that allows you to see into the distance and see into the future. So that was well understood, many, many writings through the early past millennia. Then in the middle of the 20th century, people like Erwin Schrodinger, who perfected quantum mechanics, began to talk about entanglement, which is the quantum mechanical idea that elementary particles like photons, little bundles of light, particles of light that are sent off in the opposite directions, the particles that are born together, sort of twin photons, when you collect one on the left, that affects the relationship of the one on the right. So experiments that have been done now in Switzerland by Nicholas Giesen using their very nice coherent fiber optics. He can sit in Geneva and send a laser beam off to Basel and another one off to Zurich. And when the man in Zurich turns his polarizer, it changes what's seen in Basel. So we know that the <clears throat> non-local connection, that Einstein was upset with the idea of non-locality, 
because he thought it violated relativity. He said that these photons are traveling at the speed of light. You shouldn't be able to send a message from one to the other at the speed of light. Now, there may not be message sending taking place, but what's observed is that the photon in Basel and the one in Geneva are connected to each other over tens of kilometers, and that connection is instantaneous. So that was a surprise from Einstein. Einstein calls a spooky connection at a distance, but that entanglement is now known to be true. It's not controversial. That's not part of parapsychology. It's part of modern physics. And a physicist would say, we live in a non-local universe. It's not something that pertains necessarily to photons or to elementary particles. The fact that the universe is multiply connected or interconnected is what allows this uh, connection between the photons to occur and is also what allows psychic ability to occur. So there's no separation between the person in the laboratory and the thing that's happening on the streets of Palo Alto or in the streets of Siberia 6,000 miles away. So the reason that we can confidently say that psychic abilities are non-local is that one of the things we know is that it's no harder to describe something thousands of miles from the psychic than it is to describe what's happening across the street. Absolutely no harder, and that's been replicated in many, many studies. And the other thing that was understood is that not only doesn't distance matter between you and me and forecast in describing a psychic idea or a psychic picture, but you're able to forecast what I'm going to show you. For example, I could tell you that tomorrow I'm going to put a picture on the table here. I have no idea what it is. I'm going to choose it randomly. It'll be the front page of the New York Times or some other thing that no one knows right now. Right. That is no harder to describe than the picture that's in the envelope face down right now. So we know for a fact, in fact, we've published in the Electrical Engineering Society and Nature, we published in many places the information that it's no harder to describe the future than it is to describe the present. In fact, most of the work done at Princeton University by Bob John as Dean of Engineering, most of his remote viewing work has been precognitive. In a certain sense, the strongest evidence we have for the reality of psychic abilities is that our program at SRI went on for 23 years providing information to various governmental intelligence agencies, to NASA, Defense Intelligence Agency, the Army, Navy, Air Force, CIA, and it's very hard to get money from those agencies. Is anybody who's ever tried to write a grant proposal and get money from the Air Force to do anything, that's not easy to do. Right. So the fact that we had more than $20 million extending over more than 20 years to do more or less the same kind of thing, where the CIA would say, we want to know what are the Russians doing at these coordinates? What are the Chinese doing next week at these coordinates? 
uh, where did this Russian airplane crash? Uh, how are the hostages in Haran doing? So month after month, we would have tasks from the CIA or DIA to provide hard intelligence information uh, that they didn't have. So I would say the fact that they continue to support us for more than 20 years at the rate of a couple of million dollars a year, that fact is really very strong evidence that there is something like psychic abilities going on. Yeah, I would say absolutely. And is that information classified or? No, every, everybody knows that now. Everybody knows it now, yeah. So, so you back in the day during the Cold War, you guys were peering in over in the Soviet Union and seeing what was going on over there. Again, remotely. That's right. During the Cold War, we were the real X Files. In a certain sense, the X Files is based on the work we did at SRI, because we would have people like the Under Secretary of Defense fly in, land his helicopter at SRI, and come and ask us his question of the day. In fact, the, the way we supported the program is Mr. Undersecretary would come in and say, I want to see something psychic. And I said, well, we're prepared for you. And he would say, well, who's a psychic? Who's going to do it? And I would say, you are, sir. And I would then show him how to get in touch with the part of himself that's psychic so that he could have the experience. And the result of that is that he would go back to Washington with his experience of describing where his adjutant had been taken to hide. So he knew that when he described uh, a circular fountain surrounded by bricks and a bunch of shops near the bay, and then an hour later we would take him to that very spot where his partner was hiding, he would say, my goodness, that's just what I drew here. Look at that, I drew the bricks and the fountain. That's just what I saw. So he would have his clear experience of describing some distant place. And of course, his adjutant would say, yes, that's just where we were. So he would have his own experience rather than some psychic that we brought in and he'd worry that it might be a trick. Sure, so yes. So that, that, that was our most successful money-raising program. And we had to do that once a, every year one of our funders would show up as though there's a decay that they had forgotten that psychic ability really exists and could say, could you remind me again what, what happened, what did we do last year? And then I would show them again how to uh, describe some distant location. My job at SRI was a kind of psychic travel agent. I would sit with these people usually in an electrically shielded room, and help them get in touch with their mental pictures. Right, while they were remote viewing. And then, so when somebody does a remote view experientially, they actually do it. Does it change their, like, is their consciousness expanded? Like, can you see, like, the before and after of somebody who is maybe a bit hesitant, then they actually have a quite successful remote viewing session, and then... Do they believe that the universe is non-local at that point? I mean, what happens to somebody? Well, there are really two kinds of changes that occur. If we do a remote viewing experiment with somebody, oftentimes we'll, I'll do what I think of the object-in-the-box experiment, where I will show up and I have something just sitting on the table and I know what it is. 
and I would ask the person to describe their experience and then open the box and say, here it is, that will be very shocking for them. And then they will get the idea that something like psychic abilities really occur. And that's something you can do with a very informal setting across the coffee table, in a restaurant. Um, in a certain sense, our program was secret or top secret during the whole 20 years we were working for the CIA. But psychic abilities are not secret. Psychic abilities are available. For example, if you go to the internet right now, you'll find 350,000 sites pertaining to remote viewing. Because what happened is that Ingo Swan, who's a great American psychic and painter, Ingo taught Hal and me how to do remote viewing. Then in the course of our program, Hal and I taught six other people at Fort Meade in the Army Intelligence Group. We taught those six people how to do remote viewing. They set up a parallel remote viewing program on the East Coast so they wouldn't have to be dependent on a bunch of California psychics. They want to have their own uh, institution. And those six people then taught hundreds of people. So in a certain humorous way, it's, it's the Army and the outgrowth of the Army Intelligence Program that is now having spiritually oriented conferences on learning to get in touch with your psychic self. They created a website for the International Remote Viewing Association. So irva.org, I-R-V-A.org, is right now on the internet as a U.S. Army organized remote viewing site for the general public. So the general public can now learn what we taught them and what they taught the world. Interesting. And now, were there Soviets? Do we know that they were potentially using remote viewing to view us as well at the same time? Or Well, the Soviets were more interested in remote behavior modification. The Soviets were interested in using psychic abilities to affect the health or the consciousness of distant leaders. They had a famous experiment where a Soviet psychic, Nikolayev, in Moscow was able to affect the brainwave and respiration of a person in a distant place. And in one of the experiments, he in Moscow had to affect his friend at the University of Leningrad. And this was an important experiment. Everything was being filmed. And he thought the way to really get the attention of his friend in Leningrad was to imagine strangling him. This is Russia in the Cold War, so it's a very sensible kind of ESP experiment. So as Nikolaev visualized strangling his friend, his friend's uh, physiology became more and more erratic, and he finally fell off his stool, and it, they had to end the experiment. And that was related to me firsthand by Larissa Valenskaya, who was part of that experiment as a Soviet researcher. Oh my God! That's <laughs> so. While the Russians were interested in remote behavior modification, sort of outflowing psychic energy to affect world leaders by watching them on television, we were interested at SRI in inflowing information to find out what was happening in the world. 
And, and, and this is the paradox to me and the insanity of it all. Here are our world leaders proving to themselves that we are interconnected, that we are non-local. And at the same time, instead of taking that inform information and wanting peace and love because we're all part of the same body, they're using it in a more fear-based one against the other. Or you can use anything for a weapon. <laughs> that is, whoever invented a drop of water thought that he had done something very good. But even if what you, all you have is a drop of water, you can use it to drown somebody. So there's no invention so banal that you can't make it into a weapon. Well, the important idea is that people who become good at remote viewing uh, do often have a change. First of all, they become, of course, convinced that psychic ability works. They discover they can do important things like finding their car keys and locating parking places and they are convinced that there is something like psychic ability. But they also get the idea from the more spacious world they're living in that they get the idea that there's something more to them than the story that they tell about what they're doing. They get the idea that who they are is this non-local awareness. That is, our identity comes from what we do for a living, who our friends are, and who we think we are. What we tell, what it says, basically, what it says on your business card. But your business card, the kind of story card. Right. If you think you, if you think you are what it says on your business card, then you're in for a lot of suffering. Right. Because right. it's going to change. But people get the idea and have the experience that who they are is this non-local awareness which resides for a time as a body. So who you are is this awareness. That awareness fills all of space-time and you're able to move into the future, move into the distance. And that experience you have of the future and the distance has nothing to do with your physical body at all. Your body can be here, your body can be asleep. And you can have experiences of the distance, of the future, of spaciousness, totally disconnected from your body. And people who learn to do remote viewing and have these spacious experiences inevitably catch on to the idea that they couldn't be simply a physical body, that rather who they are is this awareness. And this awareness is non-local. And that will often change people's lives and what they want to do, and particularly how they want to use remote viewing. And now, is that how it worked for you? You know, as you got into psychic phenomena and remote viewing more and more, um, I guess, did your consciousness expand? You know, did your awareness expand into more of this, uh, what I An example of that would be uh, in the 80s, 1980s, we used uh, precognitive remote viewing to forecast changes in the silver commodity market. So each week for nine weeks, we were forecasting whether a particular commodity called December silver would go up or down, a little or a lot. We were doing that with an enthusiastic investor. And we made about $120,000 in nine weeks, generally going against the trend. Hunt was trying to bid up silver we, would, we didn't care what it did. We were just forecasting, and we often made our most money when it would go down against the trend. And Nova made a film about 
us, called the case of ESP, and we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And then a few years later, I wrote a book called Miracles of Mind, and the publisher wanted to know, since we're telling people how to be psychic, can the authors actually do something psychic? And we replicated those experiments, and we were correct just two scientists who were correct 11 out of 12 times forecasting the silver market. At that point, our friends became very excited. They said, well, that's fabulous. You can support your research by forecasting changes in the stock market. But what happens is that by the time your awareness is stabilized enough so that you can be correct 11 out of 12 times forecasting the market, you don't feel that that's what you want to do with your awareness. Not that there's anything wrong with uh, forecasting the markets. In fact, I'm involved in a very large program right now with a lot of people forecasting the S&P 500 to demonstrate that there is psychic ability. But what happens is that viewers who have become very experienced with the spacious feeling of psychic abilities simply don't feel that they want to spend their time forecasting the stock markets. Again, I, I don't think that God will punish you for making use of your psychic abilities. Uh, I don't think there's anything the matter with it. But the you ask me, how do people change? And people simply don't want to uh, use the abilities now. It's a trivialization of the ability. Sure. And in some way, I'm just wondering if you become less materialistic, you know, um, once you understand or have a greater understanding of, um, again, you know, the, the unity of, of mankind and, you know, you have a you have a greater awareness, you know, your, your accumulation and you look for the things on the external side, which to me is, is trying to amass large sums of money and do stuff like that, potentially would be less. Like you want to do more from the internal, you That's know, right. more, uh, more love-based and more giving-based things as opposed to accumulating, which, you know, in America, I know that's all the rage today. We tend to be a nation of people who accumulate more and more and more. As my psychics are generally not interested in amassing lots of money. Uh, people with psychic abilities certainly like to be comfortable. That America provides very little safety net for people who don't have some kind of income. So uh, becoming psychic doesn't make you stupid. That is, people with psychic abilities are aware that they have to provide themselves with an income, not become a street person, and use your analytical ability and your psychic ability to provide yourself with an income, some way to support yourself. Uh, but certainly, psychics have the awareness that they, they're not their job. That as somebody who worked for Lockheed for many, many years, 30 years, and then they'd retire at 65, and they would die at 67 or 68. Mm -hmm. And that's very alarming for somebody who just come to work, and you see that very shortly after retiring from Lockheed, you never get to collect your pension because you die. And I learned, uh, as a researcher I investigated, and that was true for Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, it was a well-known problem not for the company, because the company is very happy they don't have to pay the pension, 
with a problem for the employees. And what it comes down to is that you work for a company for 30 years and you have this business card and it says, Russell Targ is a Lockheed engineer. And then 30 years later, you're suddenly nothing. They take your card away from you. And it's this loss of identity that people uh, causes people to lose idea of who they are. They, they lose their self-awareness, their self-consciousness, and they die. And it's about uh, two standard deviations, more deaths. That is, you would expect somebody who, man you expect a man who lived to be 65. He didn't die in the war. Uh, he didn't die in a hunting accident or in a fight with some other person. He actually avoided all the things that kill off men. And you would expect him actuarially to live to be 85 years old. That's what you expect. But the long-term engineers die in a couple of years, and it's because their story is taken away from them. Yeah, it, I think you can say that's true, too. You know, couples who are married sometimes for a really long period of their lives, 40, 50, 60 years, once one partner dies, the other one, the, the other partner will die shortly thereafter, you know, because, again, their story is so wrapped up in that relationship and that partnership. That's right. You, were, you asked before whether people who get in touch with psychic ability, um, uh, I can't remember whether they become less materialistic. Yeah, yeah. They, they definitely, whether or not they're materialistic, they uh, have a much better sense of who they are, of, of their spiritual nature. That is, they may like to live in a comfortable home, but they recognize that's not who they are. Right. They're able to sit quietly in their home, on the beach, in the subway train, on the airplane, and be very peaceful where they are. Yes, and, and now, you know, that's a whole other topic here is getting to that peace and getting, you know, um, out of the monkey mind, out of the definition of the small self, which keeps us wrapped into the business of making ourselves that business card. And being you, able to step back and have space and become more peaceful. That, I agree with that. that the, you can't do psychic functioning with the monkey mind. So as somebody that is, remote viewing started as an intelligence gathering scheme for the government, did not start as a meditative practice. What came out of it is that in order to quiet your mind, and what I help people do is relax and be quiet and stop the chatter so that they can begin to receive the diaphanous pictures that begin to appear in their awareness. In order to clearly see the pictures that come into your awareness, you've got to totally get rid of the chatter. You have to release that chatter, release those ideas, so they just go away and you're able to focus into your awareness on whatever you're trying to attend to. As you learn to do that, your awareness moves into these spacious realms so that even if you're in an obnoxious place like an airplane or a subway train, you can quickly sit quietly and move into this spacious opportunity because your awareness can be anywhere. Right. And, you know, again, this brings us possibly back to the ancients, you know, in the non-locality and why they had meditation as a tool. I mean, they were already putting these things together thousands of years ago. You know, they, they 
from what I could see, you know, they understood about unity consciousness and, um, and that's why meditation was such a great tool f for them, you know? That's right. They understood before Buddha, which would be 4,000 years ago, they understood that your awareness can move into non-local space-time. Patanjali, who was 100 years before Christ, understood exactly how to do it, and in his, the sutras of Patanjali, he explains very clearly about quieting your mind, getting rid of analysis and naming in order to move your awareness into the distance, into the future, heal the sick and diagnose illnesses. And he has a whole explanation of what it takes to quiet your mind, what kind of meditation is necessary to stop the chatter. So this is all, this is 2,500 years ago <clears throat> that people are explaining just as we would do at SRI, what are the steps in order to quiet your mind? Yeah, now did you discover Patanjali after you did your remote viewing? Like after He you was did... brought to my attention, a SRI researcher, Dr. Dean Brown, who is a Sanskrit scholar and physicist, pointed out to, to me in 1972 that Patanjali uh, had written about this. Uh, I learned about remote viewing from Ingo Swan, um, and I was interested that it had been done thousands of years before using the same language that we used. In my little book, Limitless Mind, I describe the steps that we use at SRI to help people do remote viewing. So that's not secret anymore. I was able to describe step-by-step step how a person quiets his mind, how to find a friend to work with, and what are the steps you would use to learn to do remote viewing. And remote viewing, as I mentioned before, is so easy that there's now 300,000 websites. If you, search, if you search on Google under remote viewing in quotation marks, you'll find all these hundreds of thousands of people who want to teach you to do remote viewing. Yeah, I, I guess my question, you know, and this is just a general question throwing it out there to society, which potentially would bring me on to the whole evolution of the human species in general, but, um, you know, this stuff was out there, again, 2,500 years ago. I mean, it, you know, the Yoga Sutras have, have been around that long, and Vedanta, you know, even prior to that, right? That's right. Um, so I guess my question is, what happened as a species? Like, where did we deviate from that knowledge? Um, and was the deviation from that knowledge potentially the cause of, of a lot of the suffering, a lot of the materialism, a lot of the rise of the patriarchy, really? You know, the rational mind, a lot of the rational mind, like the, the feminine intuitive aspects, you know, we don't see them as much. Well, Newton was a mystic in the 1600s. There was still mysticism that was more or less allowed. But by the time he moved into the Enlightenment, science was becoming very successful, and there was a big schism between the church and science, as you know, and science prevailed. The result of that is it was a bad time for the mystics and the witches. The mystics kept their mouths shut and the witches were all killed. 
so that people who were having mystical experiences didn't talk about them because they were punished or burned. And it was really through the Enlightenment, the success of science, that it's a traditional throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The baby here was the mystical experiences that people were having, and it just became forbidden to have that kind of experience. As in America today, nobody is preventing you from having uh, mystical experiences. It just is, the society may think that you're silly, so there's no real punishment for it. But it was really through the success of science and the fight between the church and the scientific community where the church was trying to suppress the advances of science and science was winning because it really worked. They had a correct description of how matter and energy related to one another. So that scientific view, rationalist view prevailed over the mystical view. Well, yes, it's interesting that you say that. And I've got to tell you straight away that I was brought up Catholic. In the moment you mentioned religion, I get all claustrophobic because Catholicism didn't work for me in the sense that uh, uh, you know, the great bearded man in the sky, I don't get that type of, of religion where I have to be afraid of being a human being and afraid of developing and evolving a, as a person. Um, so I, I don't know, in the context of religion, I feel like r religion hasn't helped the mystic either, in other words. like when I look at hardcore religions, they want you to follow everything that they say and not deviate from um, what they're telling you, which is, you know, there's this great big guy in the sky who's going to judge you, and it's up to him, you know, what happens to you after death. And instead of this idea of um, a heaving mass of, of energy, which, you know, I refer to as the holograph, you know, the source energy of it all, um, that we just reside in that, that we are that, in fact. Well, the idea within the larger church where what you're supposed to do is pray, pay, and obey was a problem even at the time of Christ. A hundred years after Christ, there were the Gnostic Christians who were schismatic from what was in the Catholic Church. The Gnostic Christians would sit quietly. This is Elaine Pagel's work, where she writes about Gnostic Christianity, where the Gnostic Christians would sit quietly in the field and experience the divine transmission from Jesus. And the Catholic Church were, had, even 100 years after Christ, they would have a bishop and a deacon and the pope, and the Gnostics were uninterested in the hierarchy. They said, Jesus is still alive for us. We're still receiving the transmission. Any person who is in touch with the divine transmission can be our minister today, and we're not interested in your hierarchy. There's a difference between a religion, a religious person and a mystic. A mystic is a person who's having an experience, and he can tell you what, is, what he's experiencing and invite you to have that experience. A religion in general is a hierarchy that has something to do with mystical experiences, but the hierarchy usually reserves the mystical experiences for the priests, and it's very dualistic. Within a religious organization, it's like Monty Python's 
uh, Search for the Holy Grail, where uh, John Cleves walks into the church and looks up and says, Dear God, you're so big and so powerful, and I'm so small and so puny, won't you help me? It's the extreme dualistic view that I'm the, I'm the small puny one here, and God is so big and far away, that caused a lot of suffering. Right. What the mystics from the time of the Gnostics, which is 2,000 years ago, of course, time of Christ, the Gnostic Christians said that the divine is within us. Um, Jesus, of course, taught that the kingdom of God is who you are. kingdom of God is within you. And that's a uh, not at all dualistic. It's a very holistic view. And that's in line with the idea that who you are is this divine or non-local awareness that you can experience that within yourself. That yeah. who you are is this flow of loving awareness. Right, right, absolutely. And there's a popular song from years ago, looking for love in all the wrong places. That I'm looking in the bars, I'm turning over rocks, I'm going to clubs. Where am I going to find love? And the answer, of course, is love is who you are. You're just... Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna Krishna is talking to Arjuna, and he says, "If you will just sit down and shut up, you will notice that I'm always with you. You, you and I are one." So the teaching that this flow of loving awareness is who you are is the reward for stopping the chatter, and is the difference between the mystic, who is having the experience of their own loving nature. And the religious person who is, in a certain sense, given away that power to a priest who is the intermediary between themselves and the divine. So the, uh, the mystic is the one who is directly in touch with this loving awareness, which is who they are. Right, right. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the, the former that you're talking about, the information that comes to the fore, I mean... I would imagine that that just happens, but as, as far as uh, the second intuitive capabilities, do you think as a species in general we have cultivated that or we've more... We, we've not cultivated it, we've repressed it. Yeah. Especially in America, um, which has become increasingly materialistic, as you know. Um, although women have more permission than men to be intuitive, with women's intuition still gets pretty good press. But by and large, uh, we're invited to be quite analytical because uh, analysis works quite well. It's just not the whole story. As we do have intuitive and psychic abilities that can be used to enhance your life and do all sorts of useful things for you. Okay, so then why have we repressed it? Like, what, uh, what caused the repression? I think the repression is really the extreme outgrowth of what came from the Enlightenment. Um, if you have mystical things in your life, it admits a mystery. And as we become more and more materialistic, uh, we're, we have a tolerance for less and less mystery. There's very... See, it goes. It, it's easy 
<clears throat> to ridicule certain mystical practices. Because just because a mystic has the opportunity uh, to be in touch with the divine, it doesn't mean that there are silly mystics. So what we know is that things that happen analytically are able to be proven in a quite well-agreed-upon way, whereas people who are having visions and people who are crazy in one form or another share the feeling that they're having experiences which are of a private nature that can't be shared. That is somebody who is having a experience uh, that God is talking to them or that uh, their reborn Cleopatra or that they just had a ride on a flying saucer and have just come back or have had some other recent trip to Alpha Centauri or the Pleiades as people have all kinds of experiences that they relate to you uh, which are often uh, untrue they've had the experience but there's no basis to believe that what they're saying is true or they're mentally ill so our society has taken the view that if you can't prove it in black and white, the person is probably crazy. So there's a, in our materialistic society, where science works quite well, that if you just follow the analytical path, in general, you can, you can make a living and nobody's going to call you a silly person. Well, you know, it's, it's I guess that whole curve of consciousness, you know, or the hundredth monkey theory, if, if enough people will take the time or take the independent road at first to sit down and meditate and quiet their minds and step out of the materialistic society, the duality, the, the separateness, the looking for everything externally, you know, maybe if enough people do it, you know, that wave will get created where um, it will expand globally, you know. I think it uh, evangelical religion is a big source of suffering in the world. Religions that say, we've got the answer and there'll be peace in the world when everyone agrees with us. Right. That has historically uh, not worked. Uh, that, the, uh, religious wars are probably 90% of the wars that are raged across the planet. I mean, and, and that's the irony. It's like, in the name of God. Well, what kind of God is that? that wants you to actually kill each other. I mean, that's where so many things that exist in our world today don't make sense to me. How can you sit and tell me that you're gonna wage a war in the name of God? And that's, I mean, that's kind of like George Bush, right? But what is, one of the commandments is, thou shalt not kill. Now there's no subclause that says, unless I'm American that goes to Iraq, thou shalt not kill. But the great tradition in the Crusades, uh the Christians, with the guidance of the Pope, were trying to free the Holy Land from the heathens. And, of course, millions of people got killed in that spiritually oriented path. Similarly, the followers of Muhammad. Muhammad was a mystic who was in contact with the divine. And based on his message, he and the people who followed him rode across Europe and Asia and said, We have the word come with us or we'll kill you. The kind of pan-Islam or pan-Christianity 
where people get the word and they decide the way to spread the word is by killing everybody who doesn't agree with them. Yeah, and I mean... But they're in favor of peace. You just have to... If, if, you, if you'll only <laughs> agree with me, then if you'll only agree with me, then there's nothing to argue about. Otherwise, we'll have to kill you, and then we'll have peace. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating because, I, I mean, that works on so many different levels just as far as, you know, a lot of people just with their own points of view. Agree with me, agree with me. If you don't agree with me, you know, then there is suffering when really what we need is a level of acceptance. I accept that you can exist and you can have your God and you can do your thing, but it, there needs to be acceptance on both sides. You know, if we would all just accept, you know, there's a greater level of, of peace there just in the acceptance of everybody's point of view. That's available. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, it's the same with the hardcore skeptics against psychic phenomena. Look, I accept that you're, that you're a skeptic and that you don't want to make a leap of, of faith into something that you can't see with your rational five senses. But the way that I've dealt with some skeptics in the past is they have a very harsh, it's almost like a, a fear-based boundary against what I see as a person who experiences a lot that is outside of the confines of what we can see or experience with, with the five senses, you know? Well, there was a time when I made a living teaching people how to be psychic when I was working for SRI. That's what I did. Today, there are people who make a living denigrating and ridiculing psychic ability. That's what they do for a living. They're not interested in learning how to be psychic or learning the data People who, publish, people who publish skeptic magazines earn their living by being skeptics. That's what they do for a living. And they would be, they'd be out of business if they got some data that said, gee, maybe those psychics are onto something after all. That puts them out of business. They don't want to have that information. So in America and in Europe also, there are people who are very famous for being a skeptic. Uh, some of them... Learned uh, of what's been done. Yeah, and it, and it brings back also the idea of the business card. So their business card is as that skeptic, and you know they have to toss that identity. They have to lose that idea of the small self in order to again accept and be more encompassing of everything that's out there. Yeah, I so think that's a, very, that's a very good observation. If you sit down with John Smith's skeptic, and says Smith, skeptic, skeptic on his business card, and you say, I can show you how to do remote viewing and be psychic. Would you like to do that? He would not at all like to do that because then he has to find a new business card. <laughs> I think in talking about all these ideas of tossing the business cards in general, it's the ego identity. It's, it's the, the loss of the identity of the small self that... Um, keeps people in their pat in their habit patterns in their um their sort of habitual ways of thinking and modes of um relating to themselves and relating to the world because in order to rip up that identity rip up that business card there's a lot that has to take place i agree you yes. know and and uh i think there's a big uh, a big 
I think a leap of courage. Like you have to have a lot of courage. You have to have a lot of will. Um, you know, there's so much involved between losing the identity of the small self and gaining the identity of the big self. It's not necessarily that simple. Although I have heard of spontaneous awakenings, that certainly that's hasn't what been. Ken, that's what Ken Wilber said. That if you want to end your suffering, it's very simple: ditch the small self. Is his message? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how easily it can be ditched, though, you know. I know Gary Zukoff uh, says, and I think they might say it in The Course of Miracles as well, the longest journey you'll ever take is from your head to your heart, you know. So it's just like giving up the idea of your identity that's in your head versus the, the greater self-identity, which is love, which is the awareness that's in your heart. It's just such a huge journey to go from, from one to the other. That's right, but that's what we're all learning to do, isn't it? <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Well, Leanne, I can imagine that after sitting with Russell like this, you were left, if you ever had any doubts about the existence of clairvoyance, Russell uh, has a way of erasing those doubts. I think it's his charisma. It's like when you're in his presence, all anxiety about, can I really do this, seems to melt away. It, it, that is true. Uh, there's a couple things there. And I did go on to do a remote view, not with Russell Targ, um, but with Paul Von Ward, who I believe that you know. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure if he's ever been a guest on the show, but I did go uh, try my hand uh, at remote viewing. And I loved it. Um, so no doubt about that. And also, you know, the possibility, again, for human potential, for optimizing uh the interconnectedness of all life moving beyond the, the the construct of of time and space and i do believe scientists today there are several out there saying space time is dead uh we are science is or a good portion of scientists are uh moving in that direction so um it russell removes any doubt whatsoever that it doesn't matter the distance it doesn't matter the time, that knowledge is structured in consciousness. And again, if we clear out the noise and we sit in the spaciousness and that still point, we're able to tap into that information. It's profound. It's very profound when you consider that uh, the people who he introduced to remote viewing weren't psychics, particularly. They were government officials. They were scientists them themselves. They were contract monitors sent to SRI to, uh, in many cases, you know, find out what funny stuff is going on there. There, there must be something wrong with it. And they come back convinced uh, because they can do it themselves. And Russell's message and your message seems to be that this is a, a, a talent available to anybody. And, and it's so strange that most people think it, they can't do this. To anybody, and why, I think you know, sort of yoga runs through my veins. Uh, I love yoga. I love yoga psychology. Uh, I've long studied Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. By the time you get to the third chapter, the Vibhutipada, it, it, it's all... All um, it, that text is written for anybody and everyone. So the practice of yoga 
we often focus on the asana, but there's a deep psychological, philosophical underpinning to it. And that stillness, that balance, and when we're all able to tap into that, and I think that's what Russell showed people, (laughs) is come be with me, be in this container, and tap into that silence and that stillness, and people are able to see that, wow, these abilities they, they truly, truly exist. And again, Patanjali shared that thousands of years ago. And that's what yoga psychology, not as a, hey, I'm gifted. It's a, everybody has this. But through the practice of yoga, which is union, right? The union of the personal conscious with cosmic consciousness, pure consciousness, that we're all able to tap into the f- fact that knowledge is structured in consciousness. So it's a beautiful ancient teaching. And yes, Russell symbolizes, has symbolizes to many particular people, government officials, and beyond that, that truth. In a couple of weeks, we'll release your interview with Gary Zukoff and it's a wonderful follow-up to this particular interview because Gary's point is, I think, that authentic power doesn't necessarily come from being psychic, but knowing that you can be psychic when you need to be is also, I would say, a an indication of authentic power. A hundred percent. And again, I think that's what Patanjali would say as well. And I believe uh, one thing that Gary Zukov shares is multi-sensory perception is coming to all, but authentic power is not. Authentic power is something that we have to work towards by merging the personality with the soul. So um, thank you again so much for sharing this interview with Russell Targ. And uh, yeah, hopefully your viewers will tune in for the Gary Zukov interview as well. And I should remind our viewers who may not be aware that this is actually the the third interview in a series. We've already released uh, last July 2023, the uh, first in the series, your interview with me from 2005 on the evolution of consciousness. And uh, about a week and a half ago, we released the second interview you did with Peter Russell on cultivating peace. That's right. And and hopefully, uh, and I'd love the order that they're being released in as well. So hopefully the viewers are, are um, finding the threads and, and picking out the, the key pointers of the, of the knowledge and the wisdom and um, yes, and breathing it in deep because we have the potential to, to heal, to become more interconnected, to use what's already interconnected uh, by cultivating and expanding beyond constricted thought forms and limited ideas to the limitless mind and the open heart. Thank you so much, Leanne, for sharing this work with me and with our audience. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be here and good good to be here with the audience as well. Thanks so much. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us, because you are the reason that we are here. (laughs) 
imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.